I love a sea change. On January 1st, I actually wrote in my journal, which I didn't do on January 2nd, in 2023, I want everything to change. Everyone to change. Every part of me to change. I want the kind of reversal of fortune that Isaiah speaks of in today's Hebrew scripture. A transition from a place where there will be no gloom for those who are in anguish, where the land in contempt will be made glorious, where oppressed people go free, where unjust rulers are unseated, and all God's people are liberated. I want everyone to be able to sing with the psalmist that they have experienced salvation, to live free of fear, and to be able to sing with full breath songs of great gladness. I want for myself and for my children and for my friends and for you and for everyone the kind of radical life change that the disciples chose. I want us all to repent, to turn things around, to rethink things, and in just a word, drop our nets and follow. I want us to be so transformed by this discipleship that we have the vision and fortitude to change our inner selves, our old ways of thinking, to repent of our past sins, and to live life in a way that demonstrates our repentance. I want the kingdom of God that draws near to draw nearer. I hate the divisions in this nation. I hate that people are suffering right outside our doors. I hate that people are sick and lonely. I want it all to change. All the systems of oppression, the health care, the education, the government, you name it, all the division, the oppression, the suffering, and the strife. I want it all to change. I want on this third Sunday of Epiphany, for a strange and marvelous divine manifestation to take hold of us all. I want an epiphany so big and so transforming that the present order is totally disrupted and God turns this crazy upside down world right side up again. That's the sea change I'm looking for. And not just for me or even you, but for the life of the world and for the future of God. You know, for my black and brown neighbors, I've been waiting for a transformation that signals God's inbreaking. For my street friends, I want something that reminds them of their deliverance. For my sick and suffering friends, I want a reversal of fortune for all the people of God who are lonely or lost 
or under the rule of a cruel empire, whether it's greed or consumerism or ego or privilege or power, to be released. I want to believe that these texts that we read this morning are alive and relevant, and that we too could move from subjugation to oppression, vulnerability and captivity, to experience the Lord's deliverance. I believe that deliverance is God's first and last act, and that Jesus can lead us into our new and changed condition from captive to free, from poverty to abundance, from gloom to happiness, and from anguish to joy. I really want all of us to live under a righteous law, all of us to know justice, all of us to feel divine protection, all of us. And I, and I know that God wants this too, because the Bible, it tells me so. The readings for today tell us this is what God does, deliver. This is what spirit does, lead. This is what Jesus commands, follow. But I've read enough of the Bible and I have lived enough years to know that this doesn't happen with a sea change. A turnabout like the Israelites experienced took the fall of the Assyrian Empire. A turnabout like the disciples made, it was probably a long time coming and took an even longer time to live out. A radical shift in how we think and how we live and how we love is going to take time. The kingdom, yes, it's come near, but it's not fully realized. Which is not to say that God doesn't break in and reverse fortunes or deliver folks from whatever binds them. We've seen this, too. We read, the Israelites were freed. The disciples lived to spread the gospel. The psalmist was delivered. I know that God can change my life and your life and everyone's life, or I wouldn't be here. And you probably wouldn't either. Something about life with God and following the way of Jesus and moving as the Spirit calls is true enough and compelling enough to keep us in the faith, or at least in the pew. But I think we have to stop thinking that epiphanies happen in a season or a flash. It's not always a burning bush or a pillar of fire or a rainbow or a north star. Epiphanies are more nuanced than that. Transformation for some of us may take time and a lot of work. Sea changes, they're hard to enact and they're even harder to realize. And the move into kingdom living might be as gradual as the descending of the night sky or the dawning of a new day. If you've ever watched a sunrise or a sunset, you know that you can never pinpoint the moment of either. You may know when it's day 
and then you may see that it's night. But you can't nail down that moment in between. The shades are numerous. Ask any maritime expert or sailor. Maybe the same is true about the knowledge of God and the life of following Jesus. Maybe you know when it's love and you know when it's not, but the move towards love is gradual and has many shades. And it's as unpinpointable as the movement from day to night or night to day. Maybe you just don't know how it happened. But in faith, you keep going, and one day you are there. So I've been thinking maybe it's time for a new metaphor for our new context, a new metaphor to describe God's impact on our lives and our response to it. In fact, the dark light thing may be what's making me want a sea change and that I should really be looking toward a gradual move into love. I mean, I love today's readings, and their themes of darkness and light are a powerful metaphor for some. But I wonder if maybe it's just not enough. Now, this is a crazy move, but I've been thinking about this for like two years since my friend Harold told me that the darkness-light dichotomy didn't work for him either. He told me that it's been shaming and soul-crushing and spiritually abusing him for all the years he has sat in a church. Harold is my friend who attends St. Anselm and is part of the beloved community Zoom I have attended every Thursday night for two-plus years. He says that as a young black child in the church, he found the church's teachings on darkness and light to be part of the oppression he felt as a black person in the church. Dark was sinister. Dark was ignorance. Dark was misery and destruction and wickedness. Light was white and holy and full of God. And as a dark-skinned man, this message was counter to everything he had learned about his beloved nature. As he formed his Christian black identity in the Episcopal Church, this was at first confusing and then infuriating and has now become untenable for him. If light is white, if light and white is good, if light and white is holy, if light and white is proof of a God-filled, Jesus-led life, what does that mean for him? and anyone who looks like him. As if he, if transformation is about being dazzling white, how could he ever attain it? As a dark-skinned man, this metaphor, light and dark, drew him away, not in. And it did nothing to articulate his experience of God as love or his identity as beloved. So together, we spent the last two years considering the church's obsession with the darkness-light metaphor in its liturgy and lectionary and teachings. And not only have I realized that this is a metaphor that hurts 
some, not heals. I've also seen where it falls short of articulating the kind of freedom and clarity that comes from knowing God and following Jesus. It's been an epiphany that Harold has been walking me through for a long time. But as I've reflected on his words, I've come to see that it's not just oppressive to our brown and black friends, it's a poor teacher to our congregations. It is shortchanging God, even. Life is not so dualistic. Salvation seldom comes in a flash. Deliverance can take generations. And discipleship, well, it's not complete when Jesus calls and you drop your nets. Ask any of the Israelites, ask the psalmist, ask the disciples. It takes time. We don't go in an instant from darkness to light. My Old Testament teacher, she says that biblical metaphors, sometimes they help and sometimes they hurt. She says that they're context-sensitive, and if used in the wrong context, can be damaged. But she also says, listen, you're going to have to contend with their presence in Scripture, but look for some workarounds. At times, it's necessary to find a different translation for our contemporary world. So I asked her, well, can you just find me a new word? A word that maybe even describes what God is doing in a better way? Something that when we encounter the light-darkness metaphor helps us reckon with it in the biblical context and in ours, especially for those who find it oppressive or inaccurate or not articulating their experience. I wondered, what if we translated the Hebrew word for darkness, which is kochek, as obscurity? which my professor says is often translated like that in the Hebrew scriptures. I wondered, would it better describe what happens to us when we are delivered by God, when we follow call and live by the Spirit? What if we used obscurity, void, vacuum, whose opposite is clarity, abundance, fullness? Would it invite more people into God's fullness? Would it tell the story? of deliverance better. Now, I grew up wanting to be a child of the light. I wanted to follow Jesus. You know the song. But frankly, I don't want my sons to hear from church that dark is devoid of God and white is full of Christ. I don't want my non-white friends to hear that they have to move from darkness to light in order to achieve some beloved nature. I don't want church to uphold the white supremacy that I am trying to dismantle in my own life. I want us to move from obscurity to clarity. I want to move from obscurity to clarity about God, about discipleship, about the inbreaking kingdom. I believe that is the work that God has given us to do. Before I knew God, I lived in a vacuum. Before I followed Christ, my life was a void. Before the Spirit of God descended on me, all I knew was obscurity. 
the obscurity clarity metaphor feels more descriptive of my experience of knowing God and following Jesus, and maybe it better describes yours too. Maybe it was no different for the Israelites. They were delivered from an oppressive regime that obscured them, and eventually they were liberated. Maybe it actually articulates better the psalmist's reflection that once her throat was gripped with fear, but knowing God, she could breathe again and sing. Maybe it tells the story of the disciples more accurately, the ones who dropped their nets, but took a long, long time to get any clarity about what they were doing. I mean, you know, it takes patience to wait out an empire. It takes experience of God to sing the songs of the psalmist. It takes years of discipleship to understand what it means to follow Jesus. And it takes gradual, daily prayer, study, practice to go from obscurity to clarity of vision in the life of faith. We are always and everywhere being transformed by God, but sometimes it takes a while to see it. Even just for me, and I'll finish with this. In the work that I'm doing around anti-racism, it's taken me two plus years to get clarity on Harold's point. It will take me a lifetime of reflection and repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation and reformation to even take one step in the direction of being woke. I am under no delusion that joining the beloved community will make the sea change in me that I hope for. It is going to take years, maybe decades, for my inner self to be aware, for my old ways of thinking to be changed, for me to realize the oppression that the world, my people, my privilege, even my lectionary and my liturgy has perpetrated on my neighbors. And I will likely do very little of the repentance needed to redeem me of all the white supremacy that I have incurred. I only pray that when I am called back into love, that God and the gospel will have turned me around, moved me from obscurity to some measure of clarity. Harold and the Thursday night Zoom, they've done this for me, gifting me with a hundred epiphanies to move me out of racial obscurity into white supremacist clarity. There have been so many moments when God has broken in to show me a new path of love. Moments when I've seen clearly things about myself for the very first time. Moments when I know that the only way through is love. And I just better drop everything I've learned and follow Jesus. But even these epiphanies, these gifts from my Thursday night beloved community will take time to be realized and reconciling with the sin of racism in me is gonna have to be gradual. It's gonna have to be worked out every day of my life for as long as I live. And I think maybe some epiphanies are like this. 
when the good news breaks into the world, when the despair lifts for just a moment, when lives are transformed in a flash, then we spend the rest of our lives living into that, into a new vision out of obscurity, more into clarity. That's the good news today that we hear that the scriptures tell us. They say, change, it has happened. Change, it is coming. Empires fall and fortunes are restored. Fishermen and fisherwomen drop their safety nets and make their lives new. It has happened. And it can happen again to you and to me and right now. But it is going to take the kind of radical reversal we see in Isaiah that only God can do if we want to unseat the empire. And it's going to take a radical shift in our own lives of discipleship to see a kingdom coming. And while it's not going to be a sea change, we have to step out onto the water anyway, trusting that Jesus is the way and God, God always delivers. Amen.